It's a privilege to be with you here this morning. And uh, before I start, I want to read a scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, beginning with 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and he hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Thou then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us who know no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This morning as I come to speak to you, I want you not to see a man, but I want you to see the Lord of the man. I'm going to share my testimony with you, and uh, I am going to give you some of that background uh, since we've just finished another war, and if you want to hear a good German joke, I'm going to tell you one. Uh, there was a saying after the war, in order to defeat the Germans, the Americans needed General Eisenhower who is German background. In order to defeat the Japanese, they needed the German Admiral Nimitz, who is German background. And in order now to defeat the Iraqis, they needed another German, and his name was Schwarzkopf. <laughs> the penny dropped. I was born in the Pearl of Germany in the city of Heidelberg, by the way, that is one of the cities that was spared from bombing. They declared, because it was such an old and famous city, many Americans had studied there that they would not destroy it, and it was not destroyed. I was born there, and I'm going to give you a little background of my parents first. At the time of my birth, my father was general director of Portland Cement, overseeing 16 factories. He was a highly educated man. He held a doctor title in law, he held a doctor title in uh, um, political science. He was also a man that had studied in five German universities. He was a very highly trained man. But he was also a military man. In World War I, he was a first lieutenant in the cavalry, and he fought all through World War I until the end, which I tell you now because that's very important. He was chosen by the Bavarian government to uh, go with the delegation to Versailles, France, where the Germans had to sign the Versailles Treaty, and that influenced his life quite a bit. My father was indeed a real German. He had um, uh, scars from student fencing. My father was a student fencer with uh, blank sabers. In those days, that was tough. And he had the, the scars, and he also wore a monocle, which is a glass in one eye. So he was really German. 
But when he came to marry, my father was so German that he married a foreigner. My mother was partly German. My mother was born in Sydney, Australia. Are you from down under? Well, she was born in Randwick. That's the race course, if you know where that is. She was born the daughter of Consul Ludwig Ratazzi. My grandfather was the imperial consul for Germany, Austria, and Italy in all of West Australia, in Perth and Fremantle. So my mother was born in a diplomatic family. She lived 30 years in Australia. She spoke six languages fluently. She had been all her life in boarding schools, learning one language after another. And uh, she was a very cosmopolitan uh, lady. She had been married once on the Isle of Java with a colonial Dutchman who owned a sugar factory. He had died after seven years of marriage. She came to Europe and met my father, who was a very strong bachelor. He only married when he was 42 years old. So um, uh, they were very mature people when they married. I was the second child. I have a sister still living in Germany. Well, to make a story, uh, uh, to uh, continue in the story, I was brought up in considerable wealth. My parents were very well-to-do. I was brought up in homes that had 20 and 25 rooms, beautiful mansions in Heidelberg, in Munich, and in Augsburg. Uh, my father moved to different places. And um, we had a chauffeur, we had a maid, we had a nanny. I didn't like the nanny. Her name was Bertha, out of all places. <laughs> and one day when I went out to see the garbage man and talk to him, I was reprimanded that the son of a doctor director doesn't talk to a garbage. I didn't know that. To a garbage man. I'm sure glad that God loves garbage men as much as doctors. And so um, I... Um, I liked the chauffeur, Bernhard was a good man, and every time that she had off, he took over, and I was glad. Then uh, came the war, and the war changed everything. My father didn't have to go, he was too old, but he volunteered eventually, and he landed up in Berlin, and my father joined the, what they call the Waffen-SS, which is the military SS, kind of Hitler's uh, uh, guard, you know, like, Saddam Hussein now had. And um, he joined that and he became one of the chief recruiting officers. My father would travel through the land and speak to young people, uh, to young men, to voluntarily join the SS. They were an elite troop, they had the best weapons, and in his lifetime he built up three divisions. Uh, my father was the one that built up the only Muslim division that Germany ever had from Yugoslavia, where all this unrest is now where all the, the people were Muslims fighting on the German side against the British. He wore on his armband uh, a name which uh, later was very tragic. His armband said the Reichsführung SS. That was Himmler's headquarters. That was the headquarters of the SS. And wherever my father went, and I went with him, people were scared of him. Just to have that armband, everybody stood in attention. I'll give you a good one. We went by a military memorial once, and there were two SS guards standing, and when he passed by, they turned their head, and I thought that was kind of nice. 
And so I said, let's go back there and do it again. But I got one wept right on the street. He said, you don't do that. That's no joke. He was very much for punctuality. When it said 10.30, it started at 10.30. He wanted me to be at a square once, to be at 1.30. I came at 1.32, had left with a car. I said, Dad, why did you leave? He said, I asked you to be there at 1.30, not 1.32. I've never been late as a pastor. I think he drilled it into me. So that's very important that, uh, that he taught us that. So I was very proud, and as you can see, my father became my idol. I wanted to be like Dad. He was an officer. He was a businessman. He was a very highly educated man. I wanted to be like Dad. Well, the war went on, and then came the last year of the war. They were the most tragic ones uh, in the last year, uh, the uh, Allied bombing. And I think Saddam's people were lucky because we had all the carpet bombing and all the things that we knew that they bombed. And so one day I lived on the street where the Messerschmitt works. Well, the Messerschmitt is the German fighting plane of World War II. And they knocked all those works out and they locked our five-story home out. It all burned to the ground. My father had a huge library and I saw the beams fall into this library and everything go up in smoke. And at the same time, my father was a German major. My mother's brother, who was also born in Australia, was a British major a doctor, a medical doctor, and he was working for the British Army in Sikandarabad in India as a doctor. My own cousin landed at Normandy Beach, my own cousin, and made it through to Frankfurt, and I later asked him, I said, Peter, can you still talk German? He said, natürlich, which means naturally. We have in our family all spoken those languages, and when people accuse me, say, well, how about that? I used to say to the British, I said, remember, Wilhelm, Kaiser Wilhelm was a grandson to Queen Victoria. So you see the connection, um, the old. Well then, uh, as the close of the war came and we lost everything in the bombs, uh, most of the things that we couldn't carry out, my father came back and he said, well, everybody has to pay. And then came the hardest year, the last months of 44. I was in a Hitler Youth camp and I carried a badge for shooting, I had shot into the black a couple of times and I got a badge and a young fellow of 14 is really proud of the badge. I was going to be 15 in January when in the end of the year uh, recruiters came through our camp and they said, you can hold a gun, you can hold a gun, you can hold a gun, step forward. Seven of us were selected, put on a train, put in uniform, given an armband that we were some kind of militia type of thing and then we went into battle. And I was, as a 14-year-old, in the Battle of the Bulge, which was the final great battle between the Germans and the Allies. The Germans wanted to push the Allies back and encircled a whole, this famous division that was now uh, the 101, the Screaming Eagle, they were, the, uh, they were encircled. I was in that area, all I saw was dead people and bombed out, uh, uh, artillery uh, pieces and it was terrible it was snow so high and I saw the bodies sticking out Germans and Americans it was terrible the gunner was 18 years old I was an ammunition carrier with another guy and we set up on a hill and we were told shoot at everything that moved we shot at everything that moved and so one night they told us the Allies were bringing in black people and Germans weren't used to black people, and they would not fight with a gun, they would fight with a knife. We decided, the three of us that night, we're going to leave. So we dropped the machine gun and it disappeared. 
And I tell you, it was by, by a wonderful way that I got all the way to Austria from Belgium, never being detected. I was so close to French and English and Americans, nobody ever detected me. But the hardest thing was to go to a German home and say, I want something to eat, and they smash the door and say, we don't want no soldiers, that's dangerous. And so finally I got rid of some of my clothes, I finally made it to Austria, where we had a hunting lodge. And I found my father and my mother, and it was so wonderful to see the whole family again. My mother had been evacuated there. And then uh, that night my father said something that I'd never said him, heard him say before. He said, I guess there is no more wonders, we have lost the war. I never seen him so grave. He'd come home, and then he says, I'm going hunting next week, next day. That was a, a hunting lodge we had there. And as he prepared to go hunting, uh, in the early morning, a man appeared at the door, and I went out to see him, and I saw by his uniform that the man was an SS general. And they never called my father by rank. They, he was a major. They always called him by his uh, title. They always called him the old doctor. And so he said, can I speak to the doctor? And I said, yes. And so I went into the bedroom where my father was getting ready. And he said, I said, a general is out there to, to meet you. And he said, hand me my uniform coat. He would not go to a superior officer in civilian clothes. And so he put his uniform coat on over his hunting bridges and he walked out. And he discussed the whole morning. In the afternoon, they left the house and they walked towards the car. And I stood in the frame of the door. My mother, my father, the general, and his wife all walked out. Then all of a sudden, the general asked my mother, uh, my father, whether he had cigarettes. And he sent my mother back in to get the cigarettes. At that moment, I heard that I had heard so many times in the Battle of the Bulge, the, sh the slow uh, shot of a, a, of a machine pistol and uh, the burps, and I heard it, and I saw the general raise his hands and fall backwards. I saw my father hold his side and fall forward. I saw the general's wife coming towards me, screaming something of shooting, running into the house. She also had been shot. And so um, I went to my father, and I saw the bullets, and I lay down, and I went up to him, and I said, Dad, Dad, and I saw something terrible. I saw that he'd been shot with explosive, with fire off ammunition, and it exploded in the body, and it was all torn open, and he died right there. And with him, everything died that I had, all my hopes, all my aspirations, everything died, and I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand why, as a 15-year-old kid, I would have lost my father that suddenly. And I understand people that have gone through these things of assassination and all these things. They're terrible. They, 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 they haunted my life for many, many years. And so I want you to know that, um, uh, that um, I, I didn't know what to do. And there were some other military and they, they disappeared as it were. Nobody wanted to bury the dead. I ended up having to bury the dead. And let me tell you something. I went to the only clergy there was in that village and he couldn't help me because he needed the permission for his higher things. That's why I'm a free church pastor. I don't have to ask anybody else. I have won more people to Jesus from off the cemetery than any place else. That's when people are open. Young people and old people, everybody's open when death comes. As the Bible says, this is appointed on the man once to die. And after this is judgment, people know they need the Lord, especially in those things. It comes to them very close. And so, my friends, uh, 
I ended up in this little cemetery digging my graves for the general and my father and burying him. I had to leave the country as a refugee with 20 kilos on a truck, on a French truck to be brought back to Germany because Austria became independent. And then uh, I had the, uh, the privilege to, uh, while we, we lived in one room, my mother, my sister and I, because everything was, uh, housing was uh, limited because of all the bombing. And um, my mother said to me, would you step out for a minute? Well, it ended up that in the morning I got me a roll and I left all day and I became a street boy. I knew the streets better. In those days, I'm thankful to God that there weren't any drugs yet, but I've seen everything else that there is on the streets, everything else, because I lived on the streets. It's a terrible life. I came home at night, at least had a place to go to, but I was all day out there. I couldn't get a job because my papers read that my father was in the headquarters of the SS, and those people didn't have much chance. And so everybody was very friendly, but he ever said no. I understand people, and I've felt with people that have been out of work and have searched a long time to find a place to work. It's a very traumatic experience. And I couldn't get a job. And so one day somebody said to me, you ought to work for the Americans. And I said, who works for the enemy? They had now occupied the land. And, uh, but then uh, uh, somebody said, well, why don't you try? And so I went up to this American bureau office there, and I walked in, and there was an American captain sitting. He was doing three things that I was told not to do. He chewed gum, he smoked a cigarette, and had his feet up on the table all at the same time. And we were told that's no manner. So I thought, boy, this is going to be something. And then uh, he looked at me, and he said, what do you want? I said, a job. He looked at me. And he says, see now, you say, well, why do you speak English? I spoke English when I was a little boy. My mother drilled me in the TH. That's the hardest thing in the English language. You know why it's so hard for a German? You know where Staten Island got its name from? Well, this German immigration ship came in, and this one German said to the other, is Staten Island? That was it. <laughs> you see, the Germans have a hard time with the TH, and the English have a hard time with a CH. They always say machen when you're supposed to say machen, you know. So I was trained in all these tricks, you know. And uh, I spoke English all right. And um, so then all of a sudden he said, you speak very good English. Where do you learn it? I said, I have an Australian mother. Australian mother. That was kind of from afar off, you know. And so then he said... Uh, well, he looked over my papers, and all of a sudden he switched the language. The man was a Jew, a German Jew that came back as an American captain. The Americans sent the Jewish people back. Uh, one of them that became most famous was Henry Kissinger. He was a sergeant in Darmstadt. This guy was a captain. But they... He looked at me and he said in Bavarian, because he used to be manager of a big department store in Munich, he said to me in Bavarian, the language I grew up, he said, if I treat you like my father has, like your father has treated my people, it'll be a vicious circle and somewhere the vicious circle must be broken. And you know what the German word for vicious circle is? Devil's circle. The Germans call it devil's circle. 
And that's exactly what the devil does. I hate you, and your son hates me, and down the line, and then I call it with the modern word, mafia. And that's what the world lives in. You know that whole life of Saddam Hussein is a boy that had hated as a boy, and he grew up a man to hate people. And I know because I was in the shoes. Had I not become a Christian, I would have been a revolutionary. I would have been a man that hated everybody. And I would have put all my strength into that I know. But by the grace of God, God touched my life. But let me say this. Uh, he finally gave me a job and I became uh, employed with the Americans as an interpreter. And I started the new thing. They didn't like my name. Traugott is so hard. Is it so hard? It's not that hard. And, uh, and so they called me after my second name. My second name is Vogel, which is the German word for bird. So they simply called me Birdie. <laughs> so I became a part of their mascot. I was with them all day and at night. I went to the clubs with them. I went everywhere. I want to see what makes these Americans tick. I'm an American citizen now. But I'm maybe one of those few Germans that really found out how you work, how the American mind operates. It's very, very difficult. It's one of the most difficult minds in the world because it switches so fast. <laughs> and so, uh, so the thing is that I was really, I was really, um, I got this job and, and uh, I wanted to see everything. You know, they had big signs up, no Germans, you know. And I got from my warrant office I worked with a good American suit, an arrow shirt, and a real flashy tie. And I walked by that guard, and you know what I said to that guard? Hi, how you doing? He never stopped me. He thought I was an officer's son. I went in and danced with the daughters of the officers, had a good time. Nobody knew I was a German. When the MPs came, I went to the bathroom. And when they were gone, I came out again. I wanted to see what makes the Americans go. The Lord used that later, but I wanted to see, why do they do things like they do them? And so then one day, uh, we had a new sergeant come to our department. He was from Alabama. Anybody here from Alabama? Hey, God bless you. <laughs> then you must have been from Dawson, maybe, or close by. Whatever. This man was from Alabama. But he had, a, he had a problem. He hated the Germans. He hated the Germans with a passion. Because he used to be a POW guard in Alabama. And then he was sent to Germany. And now he was 48. Germany was beginning to be an own country. And this guy acted like he lived three years ago. And so one day he made a mistake. Every man makes one mistake. He said to the lieutenant, Ha! You can scare the Mickey out of those Germans. And those 12 typist girls we had in the pool, they were really, really afraid of the Sergeant Carroll. Well, that morning he came in the next morning, and who would sit at his desk as an interpreter? Feet up, smoking, and chewing gum all at the same time. <laughs> I had learned fast. And so he come in and he said, what are you doing? I said, who's speaking? And he said, you German, get to work. I said, you measly sergeant, keep your mouth shut. And he said, hey, you're not talking to me like this. 
I said, you're not my boss. My boss is Major Wilson and Warrant Officer Jackson, and you're just a measly sergeant. Boy. And so it boiled all day. And when the girls left, it boiled some more. And I learned in the Hitler Youth that attack is better than defense. We've learned it now from Schwarzkopf. And you know what? I attacked him. And I knocked him down, but the problem is he got up again. And he got a real fight. We had a real fight. And all of a sudden, my friends, all of a sudden the major came in and he said, Sergeant, what are you doing? You know, I'm supposed to fight with a German. And I was so upset. And I had a piece, there were some papers, and I threw them on the floor. And I said to that major, you get yourself another slave. I'm not your slave. I knew they needed the interpreters. But you know what that major said? Fogel, you better be back tomorrow morning. There's a lot of work to be done. I needed a dad. I didn't have a dad who cared, who didn't throw me out, but give me another chance. They could have thrown me out just like that. It was that night I walked out of the gate. It's a very, very important night in my life. I walked out the gate, and there were big 10-foot fences, and there were guards standing with guns, and they would raise their guns and ask your passport. And I wished that these gates would fall down, that this territory would be free again. And outside the gate was a corporal handing out pieces of paper. And he came up to me and said, have this. And I said, what is it? It was an invitation to a Youth for Christ rally that GIs had started on their own in an army chapel that had been saved over the United States, was sent over as young man to Germany and started that rally. And I said, are you a sissy? He said, no. I said, you are. I wouldn't go to a thing like this anyhow. That's for old people, for women or somebody like that. <laughs> and you know, I, did, I laughed at him. And he said, don't laugh, you come. And I've learned something. I believe very strong in the Holy Spirit. I also believe very strongly in prayer. But you know what I also believe in? In a calling card and a telephone number. If you talk to somebody, give him somebody that he can call. Give him a track, give him a piece of paper where he can go. If you don't have a piece of paper, how is he going to go? See what I mean? So don't invite people and say, come by sometimes to Master College. You wouldn't find it. You see what I mean? Give him some information. While that was on this piece of paper, I put it in my pocket. Next day, all day went wrong. I had a date with a girl that blew. Everything else blew. I wanted to go to a movie. And I found this piece of paper. And you know what, what struck me? I said, I'm going to see what Americans do in the church. The old story. The old habit. Let's see what makes them work in a church. I walked up to that army chapel and I came in and there was a, a, a captain and a sergeant welcoming me. Come right on in. Come right on in. And boy, I've never been treated like that. Boy, I thought this is something different. But then I got in there and they all arose and they all sang, He lives! He lives! I didn't know who lived. I didn't know nothing. I just sat there. I didn't know what was going on. And then this guy, I called him Jumping Johnny. He went like this, you know. And I thought, this is some kind of a church. And then, because uh, the first time in my life I've been to church. And so then uh, this guy walked up there in uniform and started preaching. And I thought, boy, they must be hard up. 
They have captains preaching here. The guy was a chaplain. But the problem was the cross was so small and the, the bars were so big. I couldn't see it was a chaplain. And he preached. Good old Baptist chaplain. <laughs> he preached. That was his last assignment in Germany. And I think he, he said after me death. And so he really preached. He preached. And I thought that's all Americanism. That's all emotionalism. And all of a sudden the thought hit me, but what if the man's right? And then he gave an invitation. And there were all GIs. The whole place was full of GIs, maybe five or six Germans in that whole audience. And I walked the aisle. I know something moved me to walk the aisle. When I came down the aisle close to the pulpit, the chaplain saw me and he got frustrated. He didn't know what to do with a German. What are you going to do with a German? Get somebody that speaks German, huh? What are you going to do with somebody you can't talk to? Well, find somebody for him. But he thought, oh, you are a German. And I thought, here we go again. I'm a German. Nobody wants me. And I said, oh, this is only for Americans. Oh, no, he said, it's for everybody. And you know what he did? He took me aside from the multitude, as we have in the story with the man that had an impediment in his speech. And he took me to a side room and he led me to Jesus. He showed me the scripture. He loved me. That man really cared. He cared. He was assigned to the troops of the United States of America and Europe. And he cared for a German boy. Little knowing that that German boy one day would be a pastor. To many, many people all across the nation. And you know, my friends... He asked me to pray, and I didn't know how to pray. I never prayed. I didn't know what that was. And so he said, I'll tell you something. Talk to God like you always talk. Don't make up anything up, but remember that he's holy. Remember that he's holy. And I asked God to come into my life. I asked Christ to come into my heart. And as I walked out the, in, back into the chapel, I had to go to the side aisle, and there was a big fellow coming down the aisle and he was a master sergeant in the military and he had all the, the marks he could have he couldn't put more on his arm and a lot of medals and, and the fellow was pitch black and he was about six foot and he came down the aisle and he clapped in his hand and he kept saying I'm so glad I'm so glad and I didn't know what, he was, what it was all about and when he reached me he grabbed my hands and tears gushed out of this master sergeant's face and he said I'm so glad you come to Jesus. When I saw you walking in with that miserable face, I knew that you had no Jesus, and I started praying for you. My friends, I've never had any race problem ever since because a man of another race loved me before I knew the Lord. And it's by love that we preach reconciliation. Not by know-how and by expertise, but by love reaching people today. That's what we need to do. But my friend, let me carry on here. This guy, later we preached on the streets. And it was on the streets of Frankfurt. I preached to a huge crowd about the same size. A huge crowd of people used to assemble after the war. And two men came. They were ripped up and they had shoes that were torn up and... 
and they walked and when we passed out John's Gospels they eagerly wanted the John's Gospel and I said you guys where do you come from and they were late POW returnees from Siberia and they said I said why do you want a John's Gospel and they said we want it because there's no other answer but God and they've been to hell and back into the icy north of Siberia and I God spoke that night to me my mother my sister everybody was against it my uncle in on the Isle of Jersey my English uncle everybody was against me but God began to call me and God said I want you to go and all of a sudden through an English chaplain a padre the doors opened and I was able to go to Wales but when I had to go to see the consul the consul said you're a strange mixture father SS mother Australian and you want to go to the theological school I've never seen a combination like that but he said I think you're sincere and he called from the Frankfurt office the home office which is their State Department in London and got a number and I went to England but I came back and I'm going to tell you in the last minutes a few things of how God began to change my life I began to work amongst refugees in the refugee camps in college I had experienced some very traumatic experiences I had a student fellow student who is a great evangelist now used to be a barber Billy Graham led him to Jesus in Birmingham England and now he uh, he's an evangelist but this man had a wife and I noticed every time when I met her in college she would always be funny strange and you know, women are anyhow hard to explain. <laughs> and so, um, and so, um, they either they are either stuck up or they are shy. Either one of the two. Well, I didn't know what to do with her. And one day, when he was cutting my hair, we got free haircuts from him. He's cutting my hair. She called up and she says, "Gordon, Gordon, I want to talk to Birdie." And he looked at me and said, what do you got to talk to my wife to? I said, nothing. And I'm not going to talk to her. And he looked at me and he says, mate, if I tell you, you talk to my wife, you talk to my wife. I said, okay. <laughs> so I went down and all of a sudden I got into a bigger trouble. Mrs. Bailey started to cry. You walk on a Christian college campus with a married woman and an unmarried male student and she cries what if a professor comes by boy you're in deep water they were very strict in our school so I said why do you cry please don't cry she says I hate you I said why do you hate me what have I done to you we're in a Christian college college mind you she says I hate you because you're German I said why you can't do that we're Christians now and then she told me her story, how the German dive bombers in England had uh, bombed their area where she lived. And she saw her mother actually burn alive from phosphor bombs. And she saw the Stuka pilot go up in the cockpit. She could see him. And that's the last German she saw after she, before she met me. And all that hate came under me. 
And I bowed down with her in those gardens and I said, let's pray to God and ask him to reconcile our lives because we can't be serving the Lord. I can't be serving the Lord with that burden and you can't be serving the Lord with that hate. And you know that same summer the Lord gave us open doors in Birmingham with her husband and her and myself and a fourth member as a team. And every night we went to places to preach. People came to Jesus. When the people of God are reconciled, when the churches begin to clean up the mess in themselves, the unforgiveness, the hate, the despise, the, the jealousy and all this, then God will move in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. But that's a precondition. It's also preconditioned in the college. You will not see a revival if there is enmity amongst the people. You will not see it. It will never come. And there have been revivals in many colleges throughout the United States. But my friends, let me just quickly give you three more stories, short stories to show what miracle. I went to Berlin and a lady was told to preach in the refugee camps. And this lady became very famous, but then she wasn't famous yet. I was introduced to her and they would, I was told, uh, she was told that I was the son of an SS officer. And I felt a bit embarrassed, but you know what the old lady said to me? But Jesus loves you. If you don't know anybody, always tell them Jesus loves you. Doesn't hurt. This lady became very famous. She died here in California. It's Carlton Bohm, the lady that had the hiding place. You've heard about that. The hiding place story. In, she was in a German camp. But she told how she began to love her enemies and God began to speak to my heart. And the hardest thing in my life began to happen. God sent me back to the man who killed my dad. I knew him personally because he grabbed me by the shirts a few days later and said, we should have killed the whole breed. And I went back to that Austrian village with a big struggle in my heart to ask that man to forgive me because I had hated him so long. And that was blocking my ministry. And when finally he consented, I saw miracles happen. I went to a conference in Holland. It was a big conference and I was to speak. When I sat down, I sat with the audience and a man next to me said in Flemish, what is that? I said, I don't know. And the man said something about the Spirit of God. I didn't know what was going on. While from the back, a young man made his way up front. Everybody knew him. I didn't know him. He came to me and he bent down and he kissed my cheeks. And it's very unusual in Holland. French and Russians do that, but not Dutch and Germans. And then he left. And after the meeting, I asked him why he'd done that. And he said, I'm sorry I acted so spontaneous, but I wanted to show you that I love you. And I said, who are you? He said, I'm a Jewish baby that was rescued out of a hospital and brought up by a Christian couple and brought to Jesus. I'm a Christian Jew now, but I've never met a German Christian and I wanted to show you that I love you. You can't make things like that. You can do a lot of arranging, but you can't make things like that. I went to a church in Tennessee. There's a large, tall guy. He always milled around me, but he wouldn't talk to me. He came to the house where we had coffee and he shut the door behind me in a side room and he burled out this big man and he shouted at me, I despise you, I hate you, and I'm going to get after my pastor for inviting me to your church, to our church. And I said, why? 
She said, I was the only survivor in the Battle of Bulge. My whole unit was destroyed by you Germans. And I hate you for it. I said, my friend, are you a Christian? He said, I've been in this church for many years. I said, you cannot continue in this hate. It'll eat you up. And there amongst when people were calling, we should come for refreshments. We knelt on our knees crying to God that he would forgive us and make us ambassadors for Christ. My grandpa was a consul for our government. I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And I have to have good credentials. I cannot have hate. I cannot have these things. And so my friends, what happened is that man later became a tower in his church. I went to a church in Brussels in Belgium. A man came up to me and he said, I'm all right. I was a prisoner in Germany, but my wife can't take it. And I wanted, didn't want to speak, but I finally spoke. At the end, after our Lord's Supper, this little French-speaking lady came to me. And tears running on her face, she said two words, Merci, Pasteur. And that was his wife. She'd learned to forgive. I've been in meetings where people hadn't talked in church meetings five years to each other. And after I was in that church, they reconciled. I've seen miracles. But let me say this, my friend. I close with a story of North Carolina, Rockingham, North Carolina. Any here from North Carolina? Hey, Tar Heels, God bless you. In Rockingham, North Carolina, I had to preach. And I was there at a dinner. And as we said at the dinner, an old grandma, maybe you feel, well, what, what is he telling about this old lady? She was over 80 years. She reached her frail little hand, could have been your grandmother, over to my hand and touched it. And she says, Pastor, can you forgive me? And I says, dear old lady, she could have been my mother. I said, dear old lady, you haven't done anything to me. What should I forgive you? She says, I hated you because you're a German. And I've lost my only son in the war. And I've had this hate all these years. And I don't want to have it any longer. And there this old lady gave Jesus a chance before she went into eternity. My friends. I challenge you as students in Master College. The Master said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was amongst his last words in the Passion Week that we're going into very soon. I appreciated Dr. Taylor to coming down with some students that wanted to be immersed in some European culture, and I taught him how to act amongst Europeans, because if you go to that field, you need to know a little bit. And we're a church open. We love you students. We're, we, we want you to know that you're always welcome. It's been a privilege. And now I want you to bow your heads and we'll close in prayer.